Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. We're doing something a little different today, as I talk about from time to time. I do a fair bit of prep for most of my episodes, probably uh, 10 hours for a typical full-length one, including reading a book or some scientific papers, thinking about the issues, a couple hours of prep to get my show topic notes ready, etc. But today, we're going to go to the other extreme. I literally don't know who the guest is, have no idea. My trusty producer, Andrew Blevins, has run an online nominating process and then a poll, I think on the top five or six, I don't quite remember, people. And I don't know who the semifinalists are, by the way. And a winner was selected and then invited to be on the show. And when they show up here in a few minutes, that will be the first time I have any idea who they are. So it'll be very interesting to see how this goes. It's an experiment. If it works, we'll do some more. If it doesn't, we'll go, oh, well, it was kind of a fun experiment. Hey, there he is. Whoever the hell he is. <laughs> How's it going, Jim? I'm doing pretty well. I'm glad you could make it for our first Who Are You podcast. I already gave the intro, so I'm not going to bother with repeating the format here. Gotcha. So let's start off with who is our mystery guest today? So my name is Seth Jordan, and... Yeah, what to say about myself. My main work is also around large-scale, I guess you could say civilizational, but societal transformation, societal change. But I hadn't heard of Game B or kind of the whole world that you're a part of. One of my readers had been following kind of your work and then recommended me. My work is rooted in Rudolf Steiner's work. Do you know who Rudolf Steiner is? I sure, certainly do. He was the guy with the, with the stag bladders, I think, right? Yeah. In fact, uh, the first time that I ever is. heard of it, a friend of mine was a biodynamics gardener, and she knew I was going hunting and said, could you bring me back a stag bladder if you kill a buck? And I said, sure, why not? So I did. Nice. That was 30-some years ago. So have you heard about the um, kind of other aspects of his work? Do you know about Waldorf education and the like? Yep. Oh, yeah. I know about Waldorf education, know about Fintorn. So you know, I know a little bit, of, you know, a little bit here and there, but I would say not an expert, haven't read anything that he wrote. Yeah. And have you come across his social ideas? Uh, no. Okay. So his social ideas is, is the, main, the main thing I work with. And he brought it forward at the end of the First World War, these kind of different pictures around society. And first in the kind of at the end of the war, the governments were trying to kind of bring something to the table in Versailles and bring a picture of Europe, how it could rebuild after the war. Um, and then that didn't work. So then it was kind of a grassroots movement for about three or four years. Steiner died in 1925. You know, the things you just mentioned, the agricultural movement, also the Waldorf education movement, all came in that kind of period. So he was a very busy individual during that period. But there was a lot of, a lot of work around social reform. Hmm. So let's start with that. What, yeah. what did Steiner say? You know, what was his diagnosis first? And then what was his prescription? So... His diagnosis. So I've I've been I've been listening to your show 
only in the last couple of weeks since since I got nominated for it. But I've listened to a bunch of a bunch of your episodes. The two episodes with Tyson Yonkaporta were I thought just really fantastic. And yeah, a bunch of them are really interesting. So just to say I've been trying to kind of grasp your kind of picture for social change. And I've been coming at it from the kind of the the angle of complexity theory, trying to get or complexity thinking, trying to grasp that. And I haven't delved as deeply into game B. But I think, yeah, only in the last couple of days have I gone, okay, I just really need to get game B. So I think, yeah, we'll just, I think it's interesting. I don't really know that much about game B. You don't know much about Steiner's social ideas. Yeah, I don't need to, I mean, you don't need to pitch this in terms of game B. In fact, relatively few of my episodes are actually focused on game B, maybe maybe 20%. So why don't you just tell me about Steiner's prescription on what he saw needed to be reformed, and then what were his reforms? Let's start from there, and and we'll see where it goes. Yeah, so... The reason I bring up Game B is because one question I have is it's kind of the like the most basic question, which is how do we view society? And this picture of the difference between complicated and complex, I still don't quite know what that difference is. I've I've looked it up in different places, and it seems like maybe for some people it's a question of scale of how many variables are in the system. Nope. Like, nope. Nope. Yeah. So what is, okay, can you so, tell me what the, oh, here's, yeah, here's my definition of it at least, which is a complicated thing can be taken apart and put back together and it's likely to work. I mean, you can literally take a 747 apart and have it spread all over the tarmac, put it back together, start it up and it'll go. You cannot do the same with an economy, with a complex chemical system, or most particularly life. Right. If you take a human and break them down to their chemistry and then put them back in a bucket and shake it, you don't have a human anymore. So yeah. uh, the difference is the dynamics, that complex systems are really defined by their dynamics, not by their parts. And when I'm trying to talk about difference between reductionism and complexity, which is kind of related to this question, I describe reductionism as the study of the dancer and complexity as the study of the dance. Can you say that again? Yeah. So reductionism is the study of the dancer, right? So how fast does it move? How, what does it weigh? What are the musculature, et cetera? And then Hmm. uh, complexity is the study of the dance. How do these things interact and produce a pattern? And what is that pattern about? So complicated, think of it as, could be arbitrarily complicated. It's the complicatedest thing you could possibly imagine. But if you can take it apart and put it back together and it would still work, then it's complicated. And even relatively simple things, if you take them apart and put them back together again and they no longer work, then they're complex. Yeah. The difference is that the dynamics are of the essence of the complex. And when you get into the science of it, it has to do with the fact that all complex things live out of equilibrium, that there's energy, you typically energy or some surrogate for energy flowing through the system. And that is of the essence of the system. All right. Well, there's, yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap. So I'll just, I'll give a picture of the kind of basic approach to Steiner and Steiner. The approach is kind of what's most essential. I'll, I'll speak about the kind of particulars, but in the same way that you're describing the, the dynamics being what's essential, that's what Steiner's also kind of describing. So yeah, I guess one way I would describe it is also the difference between a, an operating system and an organism. We can look at society and think, okay, this is this is human made. We can kind of make whatever we want. We can add any sort of like plugins or patches. You know, we've got this problem. Let's fix it. As opposed to working with an organism, 
where there is a kind of equilibrium, there is a harmony of the parts, there is a relationship of the parts, and there's a lawfulness of the parts. So this is, yeah, that's what, that's what Steiner's really trying to perceive. He's saying, when we look at society, it's come into the world, it's evolved over time, and there's a lawfulness to its evolution. And can we come to understand that lawfulness? And can we come to guide it, work with it? You don't organize it kind of arbitrarily like, like you would maybe, you know, an operating system that you would just kind of get in there and make any changes you want. But if it's an actual living organism, a kind of plant or something along those lines, then how do you guide its life to kind of the stage of fruitfulness that you're looking for? That's the kind of like, that's the basic approach, which obviously in kind of game B, game A terms is not particularly game A. So I, not knowing about you and this whole world, I've been just kind of, I mean, so I've, I've got a background in some alternative economic social thinking, the EF Schumacher Society. Um, I've definitely spent time with community land trusts and alternative currencies and all of those things. But that's the kind of, that's the alternative to game A that I know to kind of, yeah, the, the mainstream world. And a lot of that world also isn't thinking big picture societal change, big picture civilization change. So in a certain way, when I found you guys, I was like, oh, great. Some more people who are thinking really big. Yeah, that's us. Let me speak first to this idea of yeah. harmony and nudging. Mm-hmm. Think, how, do, how do I think about this? All right, I'm going to come at it from two directions simultaneously that at first might seem contradictory. Sounds good. And that is that what I call the gateway drug to becoming a game beer uh, is to realize that all this stuff we have were created by humans, right? I happen to be fairly obsessed about monetary systems as being very important. So I like to say central banker mediated fractional reserve banking was not brought down on Mount Sinai by Moses on uh, stone tablets, right? And Mm -hmm. a whole series of frozen accidents having to do with bizarre historical contingencies and the result in the system that we have. And it's a human system. And it has continued to morph and change, sometimes you know, at kind of micro scale, sometimes at meso scale, sometimes at major scale revisions. But they were all done by humans, often not consciously at all, uh, and certainly not thinking about the big picture. And so since they are human institutions, we can change them, right? And every single thing in our system, we can change. We could change, right? Now, that's the possibly arrogant, hubristic kind of social engineering perspective that, yes, it is subject to change. But then on the other end, this is where I say there's a big, I would call generative tension in game B, is the complexity view, which is, if you study complex systems and especially evolutionary complex systems, one of the things you learn is that it's exceedingly difficult slash impossible to predict the unfolding of a complex system very far once you nudge it. You know, the classic example is despite all the billions of dollars worth of computation thrown at it, we can still barely forecast the weather out two weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of surprising in some ways, but that's the nature of complex systems. And so if you make a change in a human system, you know, a human societal level system, which is definitely highly complex, you can't take the economy apart and put it back together again. You can't take everyday life apart and put it back together again. It would be something very, very different. So that since these are complex systems, any change you make, while you may be able to predict 
most of the short-term effects, you're not going to be able to predict the long-term effects. So you're kind of caught in this interesting trap. Well, you want to move the system in some ways that you think are better, right, based on some basic principles. Like, for instance, you know, game B basic principle is a society whose number one value is short-term money-on-money return is not the same as a society whose number one value is self-actualization within the context of living in balance with nature, which I would describe as at least one form of the game B prime value. So if you're steering towards that game B prime value, it's a different North Star that you're heading to rather than the game A one, which is maximizing short-term money-on-money return. However, Again, this this complexity view, which uh, sometimes we kind of in a highfalutin way call it epistemic humility, right? That you can't know that much about what will happen when you make changes means that you have to proceed in an empirical and experimental fashion. Be steering towards that North Star, self-actualization in, in balance with Mother Nature, but realize that there is no utopian guide on how to get there. That what you can do is try your best, think hard about things that might nudge that system in that direction, try the experiment, and then be very radically intellectually honest at, at evaluating the results of the experiment and did it work. And not treat them, uh, you know, again, so many of the great reformers of the world have fallen into the trap of treating their ideas as scripture. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm working on a book right now on game B. And in the first, in the introduction, it says, if anybody quotes anything in this book, it's catechism. Tell them Jim Rutt will kick their ass, right? That it's all empirical. It's all experimental. It's all tentative. And it's all with epistemic uh, humility. So I would say that, that that's how we sort of get at the, you know, that's how we re- I resolve this tension between, hey, it's all man-made and in theory you could change any, any of it with the reality. It'd be fucking foolish as shit to start changing it willy-nilly and in very extreme fashions because you won't be able to predict what's going to happen. And if we look at history, when really extreme changes are made in short periods of time, usually the result isn't good. Yeah. Yeah, I would I'd agree with a lot of it, but maybe I would question or or maybe nuance something you said because I've in one of your interviews I also remember either you saying or the person you were interviewing that um the world that we're looking to create has to be based in it has to work with the material at hand meaning it has to work with human beings and who human beings are um we can't just create something that's you know that's a fantasy it has to be it has to work with our basic instincts our, our basic drives all of those things so that's that's what i mean by we can't actually just create things willy-nilly in the in a sense because human nature is a certain way and so plato i was a philosophy major in college plato has this saying that society is the soul the human soul writ large and so we can see if we start with human nature, then our social forms are kind of are, are an expression of our nature. And so that's where Steiner doesn't actually yeah, quote Plato in that way, but that's a kind of that's a kind of picture of of the way that I think of it. And also, can we change everything? So this is this is a really this is a question I wanna I wanna ask. So most of what I'm thinking of, I think we can change everything kind of at the at the micro level. Maybe we shouldn't get into micro, meso, macro, but yeah, and at the small scale, how we actually do things can all be different. But in terms of the big picture, in terms of the dynamics, we can't just shift the dynamics of, of the social organism of society in a way that's not in alignment with it. So I'll just, I'll give an example. Yeah. Unless you want to jump in. No, no. Why don't you give me an example? Then I'll hop in. 
Okay, so if we think of if we think of modern day democracies, constitutional democracies, we find these three branches of government. We find an executive, a judicial, and a and a legislative. And these are some some governments do it slightly differently, but these three, this picture, I think it's what is it uh, like a tripartite system, or I think it's called trius. Whatever, there's some Latin term for it. Anyways, this kind of threefold picture of government, we know, and we could say like, oh, well, we can do that any way we want, but those functions exist. So there is, there's the need for a legislative function to create laws. There's a need for an executive function to enact those laws, to have a police or an army force. And there's a, there's a need for a judicial function to review the laws to actually, yeah, when someone breaks the laws. So how we organize that, how we organize government, you know, we can do the, set, uh, the system of checks and balances in very different ways. We can give very different powers to those, to those different functions. But this kind of understanding that these are three different functions and there needs to be a separation of those functions, of those powers, and they need to provide checks and balances for each other. That's, I would say, a kind of lawfulness to, to the political life in its current form that, yeah, it's hard to kind of just, just, just knock off the table. And say like, well, those functions don't need to exist. We don't need, yeah. So that's, I guess, I put that out there as as one example. What do you What do you think, Jim? <laughs> that's that's a great example. I would say that the things that we call executive, legislative, and judicial, at least in some sense, are of the essence of governance. But I would say uh, this tripart system comes from the writings of Montesquieu in France yeah. in the early 18th century. And they were, it was a completely new idea at that time. And so obviously uh, you can govern without that idea. And in, fa- and in fact, many countries today do. The UK, for instance, and most parliamentary systems don't separate the executive and the legislature. In the UK, the executive is a creature of the legislature, and at any time, the legislature can dissolve the executive, and they do fairly regularly when they have a vote of no yeah. confidence. And so I would suggest that you know, the fact that you need some something to define what the rules are, something to enforce the rules, and somebody to keep an eye on the enforcers so that they don't violate their own rules. So in the most broad sense, I'd say true, but I say it's a classic example of over-reification to think that we need something called a legislature, we need something called an executive, and we need something called a judiciary. As another example, let's go back in time, you know, right before Montesquieu was, uh, and still was up through his life, the era of the divine right of kings, where in yeah. theory, the king could do it all. He, he, he was the supreme judge. He was the supreme executive. And to the degree he wanted to, he was the supreme legislature. And you know that form of governance has gone on for a long time. And there are people who advocate for the return of it. In fact, I'm having yeah. somebody on my podcast uh, here oh, yeah. in, a, in a few weeks who's going to be advocating for a return to monarchy in America. That will be a pretty funny one. So so I guess that's my reaction, that one level, one level of analysis, if you think about the a class of functions, yes, there is a broad class of functions, but the, the room for think different ways of thinking about it is much larger than most people tend to think about. Most people tend to be highly channelized by what they personally have experienced. And that's, now I'd like to address the idea of human nature. Mm-hmm. And I think that is very important. And 
On the other hand, of course, it doesn't keep people from doing things that violate human nature in terms of social organization. Think of, say, Marxist-Leninism, for instance, right? Seems to be a terrible fit for human nature. Take a more extreme version, Pol Pot, even worse, right? And so it is possible to devise systems that seem to be in conflict with human nature. They just don't last very long. Secondly, though, and again, when we think about human nature, it's very important to look at the anthropological record. The ways humans have self-organized, and even stably for fairly long periods of time, are very, very broad, right? We have 180,000 years, at least, of organizations as hunter-gatherer, forager bands, essentially, that were quite egalitarian, had no formal leadership, were kind of a fission-fusion model of social integration. Groups spun off and came together and developed higher-level organizations seasonally often and then broke back up into hunting bands. So that is a way that it's obviously congruent with human nature, though extremely different than anything we see today. And chieftains existed for thousands of years. Empires have existed on various timescales, often for hundreds and thousands of years. So the things that are congruent with human nature are way bigger than we tend to think. And that human nature is a hard limit to stable organization, but there's a lot more that can be done within human nature than people like to think. And then finally, and this is really important, at any given time, There is the biological layer of human nature, which is kind of the hard constraint. But then what there really is in terms uh, terms of creating a social system is the acculturated person at any given time. You know, how they are, how they were raised, the things they believe, what they think is right and wrong. And keep in mind, you know, the Aztecs thought right included cutting the hearts out of teenagers and throwing them down the pyramid for the priests to eat. So the range of uh, things that humans believe yeah. are, are right is much larger than we're used to thinking about. Yeah, and sure. so, so at any given time, when you're thinking about, and this is something we talk about a lot in Game B, the development of the person and the development of the institutions has to kind of go as a seesaw. You know, the people are how they are, right? And with the software and the hardware, if you want to think about it that way. And you can't can't do much about the hardware, but you can certainly adjust the software. And, you know, just something as simple as mindfulness meditation makes people less reactive and less full of anger and less triggerable by, uh, you know, advertising, all kinds of things. You get people do mindfulness meditation 20 minutes a day, and that person actually changes. The kinds of institutions you can build with these kinds of people are different. When a person has you know, reached a level of self-awareness and, and mental control, the kinds of social systems that you can build for those kind of people are quite different than people who are constantly programmed by attention hijacking dopamine interrupts. And so that's, again, part of our Game B theory is that we gradually help people modify the software in themselves. In fact, we call the the bad stuff game A malware, right? In, in the same way that viruses are malwares on our computers. And that part of coming into game B is to learn how to gradually, and it will be gradual in most cases, cast off bad software and replace it with better software. And once you've done that with a sufficiently uh, large group of people, those people can create institutions that didn't exist before because they can be based on trust and you know organic humanness rather than transactions and formality. Again, one of our key Game B insights, I've actually been emphasizing this a lot in the last six months or so, is that starting around 1870 in the West, say the US, UK, Germany, North uh, Western Europe, people started moving away from the mesoscale as their main source of life and stability and meaning. Mesoscale meaning the face to face village community 
or in parts outside of Christian Christendom, typically an extended family based on cousin marriage. As it turns out, if you look at the anthropological record, those units tended to be around the Dunbar number of 150, 150 adults, plus or minus. And those were organic, informal ways of being that provided a high level of security. If you lived in a medieval English village and, you know, you broke your leg farming, somebody would take care of you. They'd stick you in somebody's attic and they'd haul you downstairs and feed you and you would not end up homeless. And since 1870, we've extended the organic mesoscale for two transactional mechanisms, the market and the government. And both are formal and cold and without any human attributes and they don't really give a fuck about you, right? And I would say the a tremendous manifestation, essentially proof that game A is fundamentally corrupt. Go visit San Francisco, one of the richest cities in the world, and find the streets are full of homeless people. You know, the idea that there would be homeless people, to my mind, is prima facie evidence that game A is essentially completely failed. And at a world with a healthy meso scale, that would never happen. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there. So yeah, I would, I'll, let, me, uh, let me go back to the kind of first points you made and just kind of build, build out the picture from there. I agree entirely with your picture of government being able to be done in different ways. There are these functions, but then obviously in a monarchy with the divine right of kings, all those functions are being, yeah, they're all being collapsed into one person's power. And the anthropology piece is, is a really interesting one. I haven't spent a huge amount of time working with anthropology. I did just, do you know Thomas Piketty's work? I've read it, the book on capital, his book on capital. Yeah. That was really good. Yeah. And he's got a, so collab- he wrote- he has a collaborator in California and I've read some of the papers they've written together. Oh yeah. Yeah. So he wrote Capital in the 21st Century, which was huge after whatever, 2009, the Great Recession. Um, but then he wrote, he just wrote one called Capital and Ideology. And in there it's, you know, it's a thousand pages. It's, it's, it's a pretty, it's a tome. But in there, what he does is he goes back for the, the past thousand, two thousand years, and he he follows the development of all these different cultures, and he's building off of the the work of a few key anthropologists. So this guy George Dumazil, this French anthropologist, and then Claude Levi Strauss, who's a, a more he, he, recognizable know. name yep. to me, and then Mercia Leade or Mercia. I don't know how we pronounce his name. I think he's Hungarian, or I'm getting that wrong. But anyways, Mercia Eliade and Claude Levi Strauss, I know just from the bookshelves. And I've read a little bit of Strauss. But anyways, why these guys are important and what what Piketty is is drawing from their work is that they were all working with a picture of of society and pre-modern societies being what they call ternary or trifunctional. And so this this really this really dovetails into Steiner's work really amazingly. So I'll I'll put the the anthropology picture on hold for one second and just and just bring in Steiner's picture. So why I brought in the the tripartite government picture is because we can see those functions there. And when we that's but that's just government. When we step out and go to the level of society, what are the functions there? What are the key functions? In the same way we can point to the key functions in government. And obviously there's the political government function, but then there's also an economic function. Like that's that's just yeah, there are those two kind of branches of society. And then Steiner identifies a third branch, which is culture. And so you just talked about acculturation. And in your interviews, you do touch on culture a fair bit. But yeah, how we think about culture is very often, it's not as clear as how we think about politics and, and economics. So it would be great just to dig into to what that is, to, what, to how we understand culture. But yeah, let me say a few words about it 
So economics, we can just look at, okay, what's the function there? The function is that we're meeting needs. We're producing, distributing, consuming goods and services so that everyone's needs can be met. It's, you know, I just watched this video of yours, the Game B film. Yes. And so you've got these three characters, which are the chief, uh, I'm not going to get their names, but there's these three characters. One represents the mind, one represents the heart, and one represents the body. Yep. The sage, the matriarch, and the chief. Yeah. So this, yeah, the, so these three, I mean, you can look at those as three aspects of the human being, which you can also just think of as thinking, feeling, and willing. And I don't know if you, were you guys thinking about the relationship to uh, the Wizard of Oz in there? Uh, I wasn't, but uh, again, I didn't create it either. It was created by a particular uh, art, yeah. a particular artist, Jake Ruiz. And it, so it's his creation, though there was a lot of input that many, uh, the whole editorial board of Game B Thinkers, you know, basically put had some input to it, but it was essentially Jake's uh, vision. So where he got his inspiration, I don't know. Yeah. So Wizard of Oz, we also say that we see the same kind of three characters. We got the scarecrow who has no brain, no mind. We have the tin man who has no heart. And then we have the lion who has no courage. So this, these three aspects of the human being, the human soul, thinking, feeling, and willing are are kind of represented outside of Dorothy or whatever the main character in, uh, in the Game B films called. So anyways, these three aspects of the soul, you can see the economic function as especially connected to the body, to the willing aspect of the human being, that it's an expression. We, how we transform the earth through our will is what we do in the economy. And then in the realm of governance, it's the realm of relationships. It's the realm of making laws and agreements. It's the realm of kind of interpersonal, yeah, what's right for us as a community. And then you can see that the expression of the mind is the realm of culture, that it's the realm of belief and art and science, the pursuit of knowledge. So this, it's funny, at the end of that film, you guys say like, you know, what's, what's the takeaway? It's, it's go back into your community, try to clarify these three soul forces in yourself, like work out of them as strong, in as strong a way as possible, and try to encourage your community to kind of work out of these three aspects. Yeah, and then very and, importantly, find the others, right? You have because you yeah. can't do it yourself. I mean, that's so important. Is that you know, radical social change is a team sport, and that's that's indispensable. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's a kind of Steiner's picture is called social threefolding because it says he's describing when he looks out in society, he perceives these three realms: the economic, the political, and the cultural realm, and he says these are three distinctly different functions in society. One is meeting our needs, one is tending our relationships, and one is developing human being. You talked about self-actualization. That happens in the realm of, of education and all those things. That's where it's cultivated. Although obviously it also happens in our work and in our economic activity. So these things, these three systems in a sense exist and then they overlap and they're like the human body. They just, everything is kind of in everything else. So in a, in a specific, in an individual business or in an individual institution, you find any community, you find these three activities. So coming back to the anthropological picture, these anthropologists look back into early periods and they said they kept on finding this pattern of what they called trifunctionalism, which is that they found, they called it a, a sacral function. So a sacred function, you always have like a clergy or a, like a priestly class. There's some, there's some class of people that are that are tending the kind of spiritual, educational, human growth pole. And then there's this kind of protective function, which they call the martial. So there's the sacral, the martial, and the economic. 
And the marshal is the protective, how are we going to battle against other clans, you know, all of those things, other tribes, how are we going to protect our people? And then the economic. And then those three functions, you can find them. I mean, you find, you know, a class system or a caste system in India with, with whatever, five castes or thousands of castes. But those three functions still exist within the caste system. You've got the priestly caste at the top, then you've got the kind of governing nobility warrior function at the second caste, and then the other ones below that are all doing economic functions. So yeah, and going back into the Middle Ages, you have the three estates, but you have the clergy, the nobility, who are the who are the soldiers, the knights, and then the the peasants who are tending the tending the earth. So that's kind of that's where so I'm not reading anthropology. So I didn't know any of those pictures. And I picked up Thomas Piketty's book I don't know, six months ago, eight months ago. And I just said like, holy shit, this is like, it just dovetails perfectly into Steiner's pictures, which is after the French Revolution, basically all of those classes got thrown up into the air. And it was just like, okay, money is king now. Let's just like go after that. There's not going to be a kind of rigid caste system anymore, but those three functions still exist. And so how do we work with those functions today? How do we encourage self-actualization in every human being? them developing their capacities and gifts so they can give those to to society how do we do the governance function how do we you know today we talk it has to be kind of a democracy people want to self-govern and then how do we do the economic function what's the best way to empower these functions so they they perform the best the most efficiently the uh, they produce the best results for us so i yeah maybe just to say what steiner describes which is he describes autonomy between these three functions. So instead of a state that runs everything and is in charge of everything and, and is in charge of the schools and also kind of oversees business to some, some extent and, you know, is a kind of nation state, which says like our state is the most important and we're going to like make our economy as strong as possible and make our schools as strong as possible, but they're in charge. Instead, Steiner, this is a pretty radical picture. He says, these three should actually be separate. The economy should be based on economic activity and economic leaders should be should be running it. The government in an area should describe what the laws are. And those are the laws that obviously business people have to abide by. If we say, you know, everyone needs to have a living wage or a, a dignified living, then like how does the economy actually work with that? And then the cultural realm would actually, yeah, you just had uh, Greg Lukianoff, is that his name? The fire guy? Lukianoff, yeah. Yeah, so this picture of free speech is so important. It's just being chipped away in our time. But what Steiner is describing is actually free culture. In the in the same way that we had the separation of church and state, we would have the separation of all of culture and state. And so not just higher education, but like all of education would be, the teachers would be working out of their own inspiration and able to kind of teach what they want as opposed to having, you know, Republicans or, or Democrats come in and say like, you have to teach critical race theory. You can't teach critical race theory. Just let the teachers teach. And also, yeah, in terms of medicine and things like that, medical freedom, in terms of, there's even wilder aspects to this, but yeah, maybe I'll hold off. The separation of nation and state is the kind of, maybe the wildest picture. But yeah, just really allowing people to pursue their own actualization in the realms of art, culture, science, um, according to their own conscience, according to their own inspiration, as opposed to being directed or, you know, also the funding stream obviously has a huge has a huge impact on whether or not people can develop the capacities they want to develop and bring the gifts they want to bring. Absolutely. Let me think about this a second. Yeah. So let me th- let me ask you a question. It's an interesting idea. We'll have to now dig into Steiner if only to uh, understand this idea of the three being radically separate. 
Yeah. So let's think about game A, where at least to a degree, the economy is separate from the government and from culture. But the economy has gotten really, really good by hiring lots of PhD psychologists. Uh, I wrote a paper once called Reclaiming Our Cognitive Sovereignty, arguing we should give up our smartphones, and here's how to do it. And at the time, there were 700 ads on Facebook for help wanted in the company Facebook that had the word psychology in them, right? So Hmm. the game A economic machinery has become psychologically extremely astute and has learned how to program us, you know, probably in the most extreme form on social media where, you know, since you're not paying for it, you are the product in some sense, uh, throws computers more powerful than the ones that beat Casper off at chess in mining our behaviors and having access to literally billions of people's behaviors and being able to manipulate us to make us more valuable to advertisers. And then, you know, prior to that, the age of television was able to program us to believe that if you had a Corvette, you were more likely to get laid, right? You know, if you bought Budweiser, you're going to play beach volleyball with uh, good-looking chicks in their bikinis, right? And, you know, that was a a cruder level, but still quite psychologically astute. And then kind of goes back to Bernays, Freud's son-in-law, who was the inventor of modern propaganda and advertising and PR and everything else. Bernays, very overlooked figure in the history uh, of the evolution of game A. And so in those sense, even if the economy is separate by its nature, it is, I would say corrupting, but to be more objective, we could say massively changing culture. And so I'm not not at all clear that there's a clean separation between the two. And I would suggest that the game B approach is maybe the opposite. I'm going to I've never really thought of it this way, so I might yeah. be speaking too yeah, soon, yeah. But, but I'm going to say maybe the opposite, which is that we should organize very locally for most things, the so-called proto-B level, 150 adults, plus or minus, maybe it's 300, there's some internal discussion, 150, 300, anyway, in that range. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing about Game B, there is no, since there is no catechism, there's lots of differences of opinion about things, and I'm just giving you my point of view and sort of, you mm-hmm. know, and some other people's, is that we think that maybe the these are holistic, but local, so that you know any given community makes its own complex system that combines those elements, but not necessarily at all in a cleanly separated way. You know, we might make sure that the economics don't program our children to want you know lots of shiny objects. You know, we may want to make sure that our children don't get smartphones when they're seven years old, et cetera. And we make that as a holistic cultural determination that's local and that the different proto-bees may, may well come to different decisions. You know, and I think I'll give you two examples in contemporary history of communities that kind of work that way. One are the Mennonites and the Amish. They're not at all monocultural like people sometimes think they are, right? Every group, every parish, they call it, it's about 25 families, 30, 40, 50 in that range, make their own determinations about technology. You know, you, you know that the, you know, most of the Amish don't drive, a few do. Some Mennonites don't drive, most do, but some of them have very interesting, strange rules, like they can only drive black cars, for instance. Mm. You know, some of them will allow electricity in the barn for the milking machines for their cattle. A lot of the Mennonites, particular dairy farm but not in the house. The Amish typically will not allow a telephone in the house, but allow a telephone in the barn. So in case you have to call the vet for a sick 
animal, you have a telephone available. So anyway, these are highly nuanced, discerning, and local decisions about holistic culture. Yeah, And, and I, I would say that is, would be my game B response to this, which is the three elements certainly exist. And, and while it may actually be sa- the, a smart way to think about it at the nation state level or the, you know, the, the highest level, if as it is in game B, where most of the cultural plumbing exists at the hyper local level, that may not be the right way to think about it. In fact, the reason we've chosen that is history has shown that's a level where humans can manage themselves with relatively minimal bureaucracy. And yes, there are cultural norms and those are either explicit or not, but you know, communities of 150 were able to manage themselves for a very long time without formal, rigid, you know, role-based leaders, I mean, uh, position-based leaders, I should say. And we make the distinction between position-based leadership and role-based leadership, just as the foragers did. If they had to fight the, the group next door, somebody emerged as the war leader. And as soon as the war was over, they were no longer the war leader. And, you know, a woman might have been the expert at tuber hunting, right? Finding uh, underground roots that were good. And she would lead the tuber hunting parties until some young person rose up and became a better tuber finder. And then that person became the leader of the tuber hunt. So that's what we call role-based leadership versus, you know, we tend to have the more formal position-based leadership. You are the CEO, therefore you have these powers. You are the CFO, you have these powers. You know, we still don't see that as probably how uh, how Game B works. So I guess that's my response is that that's an interesting idea. I'm going to learn more about it. I'll have to go read a little Steiner and where people write about Steiner. And maybe it makes sense when thinking about organizing a nation state, but I think it's antithetical, difficult, whatever the fucking word is, (laughs) antithetical, yeah, to how you would organize organically at the, at the face-to-face mesoscale. Yeah. So let me, let me respond to that. The problem with, I'm I'm writing an article right now called Working with Social Threefolding because Steiner's work is so, is so broad and he's speaking into a context 100 years ago that it can be hard to know where to kind of enter his work. He's got one basic book. I mean, if you wanted to pick up a book, his basic book towards social renewal is a, is a great place to start. But, you know, the first chapter, for instance, is about, you know, the, the plight of the proletariat in whatever, uh, 19th, 20th century Europe. So it's, you know, if people don't know about what the workers were going through at that time period, it can feel a little bit like, what am I reading here? But anyways, that's not to discourage anybody from reading Steiner. It's, it's brilliant stuff. But yeah, to respond to what you, were, what you were pointing to. So the Amish, for one, and this picture of Facebook for the other, I think we're in complete agreement, actually, I think, but it's a, we'll have to kind of pull it apart a little bit. So, so Facebook hits you with advertisements. They want you to, to think certain things. You know, business for the last, what, 100, 200 years has just dominated the other two spheres. So obviously in politics, I mean, in terms of uh, lobbyists and the like, it's just taken over politics, but also culture. It's just, it's, it's dominated culture. And it also, you know, it appropriates culture. It says like, look at this artist or this musician or this sports star represents our brand. So it just constantly is is kind of stealing culture in a way. And I just don't know why anybody at any level would say like, oh yeah, no, I'd prefer to have Facebook tell me what to think and give me advertisements of what they think is cool and stuff like that. Like, why would you want business to, to play that role in your life? Wouldn't you, if we could devise, devise if we could design a system, wouldn't you just say like, business doesn't actually know 
how science should be pursued, how art should be pursued, how education should be pursued. It doesn't know any of these things, so it shouldn't weigh in on any of these things. And that's just a kind of principle. If, if there were individuals in a community who said, like, no, we want our business leaders to tell us what to teach or what to draw, then, like, go for it. But it's just, it's recognizing the principle that, like, it doesn't actually make sense to come from them because of the source that they're working out of. It also doesn't make sense for politicians to tell a teacher what their curriculum should be because of the source of what they're working out of. They're, they're concerned about human rights. They're concerned about what's applicable across the board equally for every single person. They're not really actually qualified to say like whether or not this, this teacher should teach the Renaissance or the Reformation. Like They're not you know, qualified to say what a teacher should teach or what a child needs, what kind of education a child needs, because every individual needs very different things. So it's really... It should be between the parent and the teacher. Uh, yeah, the parent and the teacher figuring out like what's best for this child. Politicians don't really have much role there. So, anyways, whether or not we're talking about at the kind of like local community level, whether or not we're talking about at the nation state level, these principles are. It's a question of how do we see the role of government? How do we see the role of business? How do we see the role of? There are no major cultural institutions in the same way. You know, the church used to just dominate, but now we have universities that have split off from the church. We have hospitals, we have other cultural institutions doing their own thing, but they don't have the same kind of power. They don't have the same kind of consolidation of power that government and business do. But coming to the Amish, the Amish are a great example. I don't know that much about them, but I have friends who live in Amish country that I go visit regularly. And I'm thinking about writing an article. So I'm starting to do a little bit of research. But you know, the Amish, they recognized quite early, like if we do public schools, which is a nice way of saying if we do government schools, then our culture is going to be destroyed. You know, it was, um, yeah, what's the phrase? Tyson, Tyson pointed to this phrase that public education, that's like behind public education. But the, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but it's basically the idea is like, let's make one people. You know, let's, let's get everybody on the same page. Let's erase cultural difference. And that's been the kind of project of American public education. And if you are one of those cultures, if you're Hispanic or indigenous or whatever you are, and you want to, or Amish, you want to maintain your own culture, it's not a good place to do so. To send your kids to public schools and then have them come back and be like, oh yeah, we're going to be able to maintain a cohesive, powerful cultural impulse. And the Amish, they do have a cohesive culture. It's amazing living in the United States where everybody is just kind of like everything. And then the Amish are the Amish. And there's other ones too. Yeah. The ultra-Orthodox Jews have done something. Yeah, the Hasidics are also, yeah. And then there are there's some ones in the northern, uh, up in northern North Dakota, Hutterites, another. Oh, yeah. yeah they uh, are radically communal family-level communism, essentially, and religious crackpots of prodigious proportions. But they, uh, but again, you know, they have chosen to insulate themselves from these other things, and at the cost, that, and it seems true, the Amish and the many. By the way, the Ruts originally were Mennonites, as it turned out. Oh, yeah. A long time ago, but they uh, had yeah, the good. No good, longer. They drifted away <laughs> from Lancaster County, PA, around. 1800 and gradually drifted to the north and the east and intermarried with the other folks and put all that behind them. But anyway, all three of those groups have considerably lower incomes than average Americans, considerably lower educational levels. Certainly the Amish do, or, you know, eighth grades, all you, you know, that's, you know, they'll, they've 
grudgingly agreed to send their kids to the government school till eighth grade and not thereafter. And many of them now are homeschooling here in rural Virginia, where I live. We have a lot of Mennonites and old, I would say the majority of them are now homeschooling for that reason. But in, you know, again, in game B land, the way we honor that is through the localism and the higher level concept of coherent pluralism. Coherence meaning there's a few things we all agree to, like living for self-actualization in balance with Mother Nature, not exceeding the carrying capacity of the earth. But other than that, there is lots of ways to skin that cat. And if, and if you want to do it in a uh, yeah. <laughs> in an Amish kind of way, that's cool. If you want to do it in a bizarre California sex cult kind of way, well, I suppose that's cool too. I wouldn't bet on that one working, but maybe you can make it work, whatever, right? And so, and so we, can, we can almost think of ourselves as encouraging the proliferation of Amish and Hasidic and Hutterite and kind of getting formal and into complexity thinking. We call it a high-dimensional search in design space for how to live in these mesoscale communities. And there are probably multiple answers that will work. And that is so different than, you know, game A, which, as you say, as you point out, you know, the state school wants to crush everybody down to, to fit one cookie cutter, by the way, to prepare them to be consumer of shiny objects. And of course, and of course, the United States is far from the worst of those, because at least we have community control of schools at the county level. A place like France, where, you know, famously, it's May 5th at 2.30 p.m. Every student in every school in France, every fifth grader is in the same page of the same math book, getting exactly the same lesson. You know, France is probably the most extreme. Japan isn't far behind. But this is, you know, this is a manifestation in general of late stage game A, which is to squash differences, homogenize everything, and essentially to turn everybody into nice, docile, domesticated consumers. Yeah. I mean, the, the picture you're describing of there are these kind of outlier communities, I mean, what it reminds me of is, I mean, that is that is the reality. It's amazing that the Amish yeah, have survived and these other, these other communities have survived. They have obviously strong kind of religious, spiritual impulses. But it's, it's like thinking about the separation of church and state. And now any church can kind of exist within certain limits. But what if we had a state church that was like all powerful, like some countries, England has a state church, other countries do. But what if it just dominated the religious landscape and had a huge amount of funding from the government? And yeah, how would other churches look in comparison? So it's it's also, it's just, it's just, we don't, so we don't have a level playing field. The government just runs government schools. And then also other communities haven't even had a chance. Like what would it mean if indigenous communities in the United States had said, you know, I want to start my own school. I want to, you know, this community needs to have its own school teaching indigenous spiritual beliefs, indigenous values. And if there was actually, you know, just imagine a voucher system where every child was given the same amount from the government. And then anyone who wanted to start a school within, you know, the safety of the law, the law still obviously applies there, could. And the only thing that would keep it going is whether or not parents actually wanted to send their children to that school. So if things were really in the hands of, parents and teachers. So it just creates, it creates a very different imagination. It's obviously something that could be possible. It might actually happen because the school system is just collapsing from all the COVID stuff. And just, I don't know, the, the articles in the podcast I listened to on it are just like, it's a dire situation. So who's actually, who actually feels inspired to teach is a bit of a question, but maybe I'll just bring up this other picture because it, it touches on it. So Woodrow Wilson at the end of world war one, really brought this picture of the nation state 
and obviously that had existed beforehand, but it was a way of breaking up, especially Austria and, and other countries, because Austria had like 13 different nations within it. You know, It had all these different groups. And so they said every nation should have its own state. And that seems like, seems like a really beautiful principle. You're like, oh yeah, like why should the Serbs not have their own Serbian country? Why should the Hungarians not have their own Hungarian country? Like everybody, why should the Slavs, you know? So that seems to make sense. But the problem with it is that in every one of those countries, there are other nations, there are other minority groups. So all of a sudden you've broken apart Austria into 13 different countries. And we've said, no, this is Serbia. This is where the Serbs live. So if you're a Serb living in whatever, like Hungary, like come over here because this is where you'll have your full, you'll be able to actualize as a, as a citizen. But that means everybody's got to move. And that just doesn't happen. You know, I mean, it just doesn't happen that everybody stays within the bounds of their own little nation state. And so this is, I mean, this is how we can also see Israel. Israel just passed a, a nation state law where they said, Jews are the only ones who can self-determine. And so, yeah, Palestinians can't, um, Arabs can't. And then everybody was outraged by this, but this is, the, this is the idea of the nation state, is that a certain national ethnic group will be able to dominate and create a state that everybody else has to obey. You know, it wouldn't make much sense if in Serbia, like, well, actually in Bosnia right now, there's there's Serbs in Bosnia who are trying to kind of break off. But if they became the the main culture, the main ethnicity, if they took over the government and made it into like a, a Serbian, if it had Serbian values as opposed to Bosnian values, it doesn't make any sense to bring our cultural or religious or spiritual values into the government. The government should just be the people making rules and laws between each other, regardless of what cultural beliefs a person has, what religious beliefs a person has. So this is, this is one of the kind of most radical ideas out of Steiner's work, is that we should separate all nations and states. But that's, I mean, that's implicit in what I said before. We're separating culture. We should separate culture, and, uh, state, and economy, because they're all working out of different impulses. They all have different functions. And so to have yeah, businesses telling people what to, or schools telling people what to think doesn't particularly make sense. Yeah, that's a lot of big pictures. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, the nation state is a late invention, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, if you think earlier, think of the Greek city-states, they were all national Greeks, right? They all spoke Greek. Usually it's language that's the determiner. And yet they were independent polities. So you could have sovereignty below the nation-state level. And then, as you point out, for a long time, there were you know multinational empires. You know, before World War One, the Russians was a multinational empire. The Turks were the Ottomans, Austria-Hungary, the British, obviously, even the Italians to a degree had some colonies, and the French had some colonies and such that were multinational. And it was you know the post World War One ethos of you speak the same language, you should have your state, right? As you point out, there's always the issue of minorities. And it's quite interesting that the, the nation state vector still is quite strong. I mean, yeah. like recently, Czech and the Slavs separated. The five nations in Yugoslavia, even though they're all Slavs, they're different style of Slavs, and they all split up. Belgium could easily split into the Dutch-speaking and the French-speaking. You know, they're on the verge of it all the time. Yeah. So that force is still pretty strong in nature. And again, to your point about resident minorities, where it's worked the best, frankly, is where ethnic cleansing has occurred. <laughs> like yeah. the Turks and the Greeks were all interwoven with a lot of Greeks living on the... Uh, 
uh, Aegean coast of Turkey, Turks living in the Macedonian region, Thessalonica, etc. And after the very brutal wars in the early tw- 1920s, there was a, a movement of millions of people between the two. And so now there are essentially no Turks in Greece and no Greece in Turkey. And essentially sort of worked. And of course, after World War II, all the Germans who had been historically scattered all over Eastern Europe, as far as the Volga River in Russia, the so-called Volga Germans, were all driven out and driven back to Germany. And Germany is now a pretty homogeneous German-speaking country. So uh, ethnic cleansing does work. If you're going to have nationalism, you probably ought to have ethnic cleansing also, as horrible as that is. Yeah. But yeah, to put that back into a game B state, you know, we think the states to the degree they need to exist, just shouldn't be very powerful or even very relevant, right? Because if most of the if most of your life is about your face-to-face community and the communities have direct relationships with other communities, and then they have business ventures that exist across multiple communities that may be owned by the communities in part or owned collectively by a group of communities, then the power of the state becomes you know much less. And, you know, it may well not matter at all that people speak the same language if they happen to be in the same wrapper. And maybe we will see a return to states at a larger level. And you know, one, of the, one of the arguments for that, make the states relatively weak, but relatively bigger so they can deal with the few things that state level entities should deal with, like the environment, right? If you're going to deal with the environment, bigger, it's probably better because a lot of issues span large amounts of geography, things like climate change, you know, water pollution, et cetera, air pollution. But if that's all they dealt with, and most things were taken care of locally or in collective action of multiple localities, it may make sense to have a bigger but weaker kind of nation or state. It may not even be a nation state, to your point, that it may be that this relatively new invention, this obsession with nation states since 1918 Uh, may turn out not to be relevant so long as autonomy is mostly pushed down to the local. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely not implicit in the, in the idea of a state. Like there's no reason, you know, I mean, so you mentioned Belgium, Belgium is a multinational state or a plurinational state. Switzerland also has four different kind of national cultures. So there are, there are some countries that do it differently, but really, you know, in those multinational states, they're, they're saying these three languages, these three cultures are the most important. And of course, there are other cultures there. Of course, there are people coming up from Africa or, you know, Turkey, or like there's people coming from everywhere in all of those places. So the idea of the state, which is the fundamental principle of it is just equality. And how do we create laws that apply equally to everybody and, and are what our community consider right? It doesn't really matter how the community is constituted. It doesn't matter who's there. It doesn't matter what their what their ethnic culture is or what their religious culture is. They should just everybody should come together. And so this, I bring it up because the function will always be there. So yeah, whether or not we think of it as a large state, even if it's just a small community, you know, a small community living off the grid, for instance, twenty families or something, still they need to figure out how to govern themselves. Still, they need to figure out what kind of agreements they're going to make between each other, and and that activity. So one of the things that's really beautiful from Steiner's work is he recognized that in these three realms of culture, politics, and, and the economy, we, we cultivate different aspects of the human being. So in the government, we have the possibility of cultivating the experience of equality, but we actually have to participate in government in order to do it. So we talk about all being equals, but 
you know, we don't actually have much of a relationship to that. We go to vote every few years. But if I was at Occupy Wall Street and at every night there was a general assembly and every night everybody was engaged in the decision-making process. And for all of those people, it was just a wild experience. It was like an incredibly empowering experience of, of engagement in self-governance. And I've also, one time I didn't know what I was doing. I, um, I didn't get out of doing jury duty and I, I was forced to work on a, to, to act in a jury. And that was also just uh, really mind-blowing for me to, to actually be a voice amongst a jury of my peers about this person's fate in the community. Like what we say is actually, it actually matters. It's actually existential. We're actually participating in this kind of self-governance function. And Steiner just points to the fact that democracy needs to make that a reality. We should be actually participating. And in so doing, it's the place where we can come across the table from people who are culturally very different than us. We don't need to make everybody culturally the same. If we had a really radically participatory governance function, then we could we could sit across the table with people who wear very different clothing, speak very different languages, live across the train tracks, have very different economic you know, positions in the, in the society, that that experience is actually really important for, for human beings at this point. That's, what we've, that's why we fought for democracy. That's why we fought for self-governance, so we can actually do it. And then, yeah, in the other realms, you know, in the realm of culture, that's where individuals can actually just become themselves. And so that makes, you know, if you're meant to become a musician or whatever, that, that were, that, that's where it makes sense to like work with your own people, to go to your own church, to go to your own school, to like work on your own things in order to, in order to get really good at it, in order to be able to bring those capacities, develop those capacities. They're very specific. They're very specific to you and then bring them into the world. And just to say, Steiner says, in the economy is where we can really actually develop the experience of solidarity. We can, exper- we can develop the experience of fraternity between people. And so... Yeah, if if it's not a dog eat dog capitalist system, so he he just points to the fact that that the modern economy based on division of labor, that that sounds terrible in a lot of ways. It leads to specialization. People don't um, they're no longer you know creating the whole product. They don't have a connection to the whole thing that they used to you know they used to they used to know the customer coming in the door and then they would they would measure the feet and make a whole pair of shoes by themselves. And there, there was a certain kind of meaningfulness in that work. And now you work in a sneaker factory, you don't know who's, who you're selling it to, you're just sewing in the tongue to that sneaker over and over and over again. And it's, you know, there's no meaning to the work. And so that's the kind of the downfall of the division of labor. But Steiner points to the fact that in every step of the division of labor, you know, if you're living off the grid by yourself, and then somebody moves in next door, and you start trading things, all of a sudden, it starts leading to interest in the other person. Oh. Like you have, you don't have a vegetable garden. Like, let me exchange some of your vegetable. Let me exchange some of my vegetables for your wood. So in the division of labor built into it is the human being is forced to become more and more selfless. The work is less and less for myself. I'm not just producing everything for myself anymore. I'm producing everything for everybody else. And the problem is that we're working against that by having people work for a wage and yeah, work for their own interest. That's how we've kind of like, that's the way that capitalism has kind of hijacked the system. and. What if we took away that, that motivation, which I know is a big part of, of Game B and, and a lot of the discussions you have, what if, we, what if we tried to make it so it wasn't just everybody who was working for their own self-interest, but was excited about self-actualizing, bringing their gifts into the world, and was actually working for others? How do we actually do that? And you know, you've talked about universal basic income. 
obviously that's a picture there. If, if people just have the income they need, then they'd start like working the work that they found inspiring. But Steiner's picture is that to actually transcend the motivation of self-interest, we have to replace it. That's an engine that runs our society, our economy. We need to replace it with something else and we can replace it with actual interest in other people. So if we, if we have an actual participatory governance system and we actually have an educational system where we're learning about we're learning about how society actually works and we're, we're getting fuller pictures, then that knowledge and that experience of other people will replace pure motivation for uh, self-interested motivation. So that is, it's a big task, obviously, but it's an actual kind of, it's an actual like roadmap forward. How do we replace these things? We replace these things, not by just like cutting off self-interest, but by yeah, bringing in something else that can, that can replace self-interest. Yep. I think, yeah. The game, I think the uh, terminology we're just starting, just starting to develop, it's kind of new, is moving from me to we, right? Yeah. Yeah. Move the focus. And again, this goes all the way back to our earliest discussions about human nature, I think we're skeptical that it's easy to do that in New York City, where you're kind of mixed up with a random number of people with radically different agendas and perspectives. But in a community of people who have chosen to club together as a community and have reasonably similar values, even though they may look very different, but they have chosen their local operating system together, either they've either created it or because, again, think about Game B in 100 years, there'll be you know, hundreds of thousands of these small communities and people will just the way the Amish kids go out into the world when they're 17 to see if they may, might want to become bloody capitalists instead. 90 some percent of them come back to the Amish community. I would expect game B youth to run around and try out various uh, communities and find the one that fits for them. But each one will be quite different and they won't actually have to be the same. And it's, but, but I, oh yeah, God, that's what I was getting at. Sorry. I drifted there a little bit, you know, brain fart. Sorry. When we get back to human nature and we look yeah. at the history of human nature, we're somewhat skeptical that this me to we can happen in a strong form in large groups and that, that, and that the we is really the forager band of 150 people. That's what we were evolved to care about. And yes, we do need, and it is important, if we're going to save the earth from melting down, we do need to develop a sense of we about the whole global community. But realistically, the we that we are engineered to be a part of is the uh, forager band, 150 at the max adults. And so that's, again, uh, why we have chosen this, this mechanism for you know, how to build from the bottom up. And what happens above that, we're a little bit less clear about. What kind of self-organization will occur amongst these elements? Will it create a state? It has to create something to manage the large-scale commons. But is it the state as we know it today? Not sure. Can I um, poke at the, uh, the 150? Sure. I mean, so I guess I wonder, I wonder what your experience is because, I mean, I don't have a relationship to, to 150 people. You know, my, my relationships as they've evolved is like, it starts off in the family. Like I know those relationships quite strongly. And then like the actual village and town where I grew up, I didn't really know that many of those people. I mean, that's just not how we're, how things are designed anymore. So designed, I don't know. That's just not how things go anymore. So I knew some of them. I was, you know, I spent plenty of time in town and I knew the person, you know, the women who ran the local bakery because I'd go in there and get my donuts and whatever it was, you know, I would know some people in some shops, but I guess I just wonder yeah, I mean, I'm, as I said earlier, like I'm all about the, I got my start in a sense with the local economy stuff, local currencies and yeah, how do we work with land in a different way, 
kind of under under community umbrella. But obviously, yes, we've come from that background where there were tribes or clans or whatever of a certain of a certain size and scale. But I don't really feel that so ingrained in me. What I feel more is like, how do I develop the capacities to actually take an interest in people? Like that's just not easy for me. You know, I had my friends in college and that was like a big group and I still keep in touch with some of them. But like I don't know, like at a certain point, those, those, that kind of natural friendly way of just like doing things, you know, it's how do you, how do I do it consciously now out of my own capacity? How do I actually, how do I actually build community as I, as an adult? And just to say, it's a really interesting example of, um, (laughs) of business just dominating culture is I was, I'm staying with friends in, in Boston right now and they, do you know about B Corps? Oh Yeah. Yeah, so one of my friends works yeah for the B Corps in in Boston, whatever their organization is here that they're they're doing. But anyways, they're not here, and I was looking through their books, and one of them is called the Culture Map, and it says breaking through the invisible boundaries of global business. So you know, every anytime I see a book on culture, I'm like, great, like what's the story with this book? Like, is it going to give me an insight into like the nature of culture? And it's hilarious because this book goes into like, okay, different cultures are different from each other and we need to we need to understand that in order to be able to do business together. We need to be able to understand these cultural differences. But why why I have to find that book written from a business perspective and I can't just find that book written from a cultural perspective? Like we should know about different cultures, how different people, you know, like what it what it's like to grow up within Japan or Nigeria or wherever it is. Like like what are the different kind of inner states What's the different kind of consciousness? What's the way of relating to the world that 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 kind of generic conditioning puts on a person? It's not who that individual is at their heart. Every individual is is more than just their generic conditioning, but that generic conditioning is pretty interesting and it's pretty useful to know in order to be able to take an interest in people. And so, yeah, I just I point to it because it's ridiculous and it comes back to the point that you made, but also just what is the activity that we need to foster in ourselves so that we can actually take an interest in not just the people in our neighborhood, not just the people in our town who think like us, who are part of our Amish community or you know whatever community, but how do we learn to eventually take an interest in all of these other groups in their specificity, in their like vibrant cultural reality, as opposed to just like, oh yeah, I like everybody. Yeah, and you and you may not like everybody, and that might be okay, right? Yeah, you know, for sure. As, as I said, you know, we envision proto bees being quite diverse, radically diverse, in mm-hmm. fact. And some of them, any given person may say, "Oh, I don't really like uh, organizing a community as a sex cult with a supreme leader," right? But under Game B philosophy, so long as they were living, you know, within balance with human nature and their purpose was some form of self-actualization, they could call themselves Game B. And I say, like, well, we don't really like that, right? And they may not like us. Oh, yeah, we're very egalitarian. We make all of our decisions by consensus, et cetera. Goddamn fucking hippies, right? And it's okay for them to have that view. So long as we have protocols that allow us to interoperate with each other, you know, trade protocols, multiple currencies, probably for different purposes, et cetera. And so I think that, well, at least it's my own personal view, put it that, that way, that respecting everybody's culture is fairly unrealistic. And, you know, that being chauvinistic for your own culture is probably part of human nature. But knowing how to operate with those other cultures and 
and honor their autonomy. That's the key. And this is what's so breaking down in our society today. I mean, the fucking Wokies are a perfect example of this. You know, they do not want anybody to think or even speak slightly differently than their little rule book. And they're trying to force everybody into this ultra, ultra, ultra conformity. And I'd say that's the exact opposite of what we're trying to get at at Game B, where people could be quite different. And I could disagree, or I would say disagree. I say, that is not how I, I think the way I would phrase it, that's not how I want to live, right? And I live the way I want to live. And I've chosen to live where I live with the people that have the local social operating system of this sort. And it's quite different from this one over here. Uh, But it's not to say that they shouldn't live the way they want to live and that we should then have a protocol or a method of interoperating, cooperating together on broader ventures. And it's not our job to critique how they choose to live, even though we would not choose to do so. Of course, that's very similar to the amazing move that Thomas Jefferson and James Madison made when they wrote one of the most amazing documents of the Enlightenment, which is the 1785 Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom. Because, you know, again, as you pointed out, historically, states funded religions or there were state religions of one sort or another. And that was essentially the model of the world. People like John Locke, a pre-enlightenment figure, he advocated for freedom of religion. But if you read carefully, he basically said freedom of various forms of Protestantism. He still oh, yeah. said, oh, goddamn Catholics can't be tr- can't be trusted. They shouldn't be yeah. allowed to they participate in but yeah. Jefferson and Madison, where they were, they you know, Hindus, Muslims, atheists, you know, true mutual toleration. You know, I don't expect a Hindu to, you know, approve of Islam, for instance, right? But if you live in a Enlightenment society, you acknowledge that your beliefs, your consciousness, your consciousness is your own business. And it's not my job to tell you, you can't be a Muslim uh, just because I'm a Hindu and vice versa. And I see that if we can get that kind of mutual tolerance of how we organize our local societies, we'd be a hell of a lot better off. And again, that's another, I think, an important part of how Game B can can achieve this coherent pluralism. You know, another, a good example is drugs. You know, I could imagine proto-Bs that say, no drugs at all, period. Death penalty, right? The equivalent social death penalty, meaning you're expelled, right? I could see other ones that would say drugs are mandatory, right? You must trip on acid at least once every 90 days, right? <laughs> and, uh, as a social norm, at least, probably not actually yeah. a law. But, you know, there's an example of how you could have two, you could have radically different perspectives on something and both could be game B. And they're coherent at the level of the community, but they're plural at the level of multiple communities. And and I would say it's as big a a psychological move as going from uh, state religion to freedom of religion in the, uh, you know, Jefferson Madison case. Well, we're getting up. We're getting up here on our time. We got seven minutes yeah. to go, and if we go a little over, that's all right. But so, if you have any final things you want to, you know, you want to bring forth about Steiner and your work, or point to things, organizations, books, let's let's head towards the roundup here. Yeah, I mean, the things I would point people to will only take me um, thirty seconds. So I don't know if I need to to spend too much time on that. Can I ask, with what you just shared, though, the picture of did you did you just describe? I think at the end, I didn't quite get it down, but kind of a coherence at the level of culture in a in an individual community, but then a pluralism in different communities. Yes, yeah, and yeah. And, and a limited coherence across all the communities. The the core coherence, right? Live in balance with Mother Nature. 
develop self-actualization, whatever that means to you, right? Yeah. So that's the inner core. And then each local community, much higher levels of coherence about all kinds of things, right? Yeah. And yeah. so you have a thin bar across all the communities that's coherent and then much stronger coherence about a higher dimension, a number longer list of dimensions within each community. But each one makes its own decision on what its coherence looks like. Yeah, maybe just to, to say in, in response to it, yeah, I mean, what's interesting about the separation of, of church and state, as you described it, which is a great picture, is that it, it is a kind of core coherence at the whole level of the United States, which is just a huge country. And what it allows for is a kind of mobility of kind of cultural coherence at the local level. So, you know, people don't have to stay where they are with the people who think like them. They can kind of move anywhere because there is a kind of freedom, autonomy that you described kind of, yeah, at the kind of core, like the thin strata that you've described it, yeah, atop of the whole thing. And that is, that is all these things are just, I don't know, they're kind of mind boggling questions for me. Obviously, they're very big pictures. But I, I definitely understand the, the desire and the kind of, there's, there is a coherence at the local level, like, oh, yeah, we can figure out how to do things together here. Although that's even difficult. Like, it's hard to, it's hard to, I mean, you described, I watched something that you were describing with the first five meetings of the game beers. And then, you know, by the fifth one, everybody was, was having a hard time with each other. Yeah. And that's just, it's the reality. You're never going to find a community where like you all just agree. So yeah, how do we structure community where it's all right to disagree? There are certain things that we agree on that are this core coherence, certain laws, certain agreements. And one of those being like everybody can like pursue the religious or spiritual or cultural development that they want. You know, they can they can identify however they want to identify and they don't have to take some sort of script from from somebody else that says, like, no, you have to you have to think this way. So, anyways. Yeah, these are big questions. Uh, I'm definitely still wrestling with them. I guess the only place I would shout out is I write. So I I used to do a bunch of different types of work. I've been working with these ideas for the last 15 years or so, but I, you know, there's no there's no school that you can go to to learn about them. So I've been kind of just really working with them on my own. There's there's different institutions, especially financial and economic institutions. A lot of people who are interested in, in social threefolding, these ideas, Steiner's social ideas, they go into organizational development or business consulting or whatever, because like that's how you can make money and like apply them in some way. But people who are actually just interested in the big picture and how do we actually bring about civilizational societal change, there's, I mean, there's just not much, there's not much of an income in that. So for a bunch of years, I just worked on it in the ways that I worked on it, but did other jobs. And now I've started just putting all my energy towards this. So now I, I wrote a course, if anybody's interested, I wrote a course called Transforming Society. It's 12 lessons. It's a distance learning course. People correspond with me. I was asked to do it. And that was part of why I, I really changed direction in my life because I just realized I had to like give everything to this if I was going to write this course. And in the last year, I started writing publicly on Substack. Okay. The Substack is called The Whole Social thewholesocial.substack.com. And I try to look at current events through the lens of threefolding. I try to you know, take up the war in Ukraine or critical race theory or any of these things and try to analyze it from a, a kind of let the phenomena itself speak, but then just bring the big pictures to it and see how the big pictures look in the light of this issue. But I'm going to, I was trying to put something up before this interview because I want to just have a, have a kind of an essay on threefolding itself so that if people are interested more in threefolding, they can go there and find that. And so I'm working on that. It should be up in a day or two. Maybe by the time this comes out, it'll already be up. But yeah. Yeah, I think it's, 
you know, we have this on a fast track. So if you uh, get it to us as soon as you get it, and we'll put it on the episode site. It sounds like another Substack I have to subscribe to. Because <laughs> I yeah, there's a lot of them out there. I, I think I, last I looked, I'm paying for 18 of them. God damn it! Right? Oh, yeah. And I pruned five that I hadn't really read recently, but so I, I got room to add another one back. So transforming society. How do people find that course? Yeah, that's the organization that asked me to do it is called Educare Um So that's E-D-U-C-A-R-E-D-O, Educare Do. It's pointing to this threefoldness in the human being, educating, caring, and doing. And that's, so I think it's educaredo.com backslash transforming society. But yeah, the Substack people should check out. And I, if you guys just link to the Substack in your notes, that's great. I'll get that essay up there and uh, we can find it. So. Yeah, we will. We'll, uh, we'll have, in fact, that's the way our show works is most of the things that our producers can find that are referenced in the show, we'll put links to them on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. Well, I'd like to very much thank Seth Jordan for being the experimental guinea pig on the Who Are You version of the Jim Rutt Show. I thought this was actually a pretty good conversation considering I wasn't prepared at all. Fortunately, it was on a topic that I knew a fair bit about. Yeah, super interesting. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. It was great to, uh, to meet you. Yeah, this was wonderful. Thanks again. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.